Welcome back to 1 Samuel. He didn't go anywhere. He's still right where he was, right there in the Old Testament. Uh, Welcome also to the tabernacle. Uh, My name is John. I'm one of the pastors, and I've got to uh, admit to you that after last week, I was afraid you might not come back because we were getting after it. And so if you missed it, you might want to check out the uh, uh, last part of the Rattle series. But I'm excited to be back in 1 Samuel, and and we're we're not going to do the review uh, because that would be 24 chapters worth. But I will say that chapters 1 through 24 are online, and so you're more than welcome to go back there if you need a little bit of a refresher. Um, We're going to jump right in, but before we do that, um, I kind of want to outline where we're going this weekend um, by quoting the beginning of a familiar prayer. It's a child's prayer, and it's one of the first prayers, I think, that I learned. And it began this way. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him. Now, it's the end of the prayer where it gets, you know, there's variations of the ending, but you know, usually it's God is great and God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Okay, some people are hungry with me. And then depending on the variation, by his hand, we are fed. Thank you, Lord, or give us, Lord, our daily bread. And then we all argue about how the ending should go. But where I would like to focus is just on that opening line. Because it's, it's incredibly simple, but it's deeply theological. If we can remember those three things, we're doing okay. God is great. And God is good, so let us thank him. When it says that God is great, it speaks to the almighty power and sovereignty of an eternal God. A God who describes himself as the I am. Scripture describes him as the ancient of days. He's the beginning, he's the end, he's everything in between. This is our great God. And when we say he's a sovereign God, it means nothing is beyond his control. That he is in control of everything. Even the fact that you are here worshiping at the Buckley campus or there worshiping in Manistee or listening or watching online is only by the sovereign will and authority and say so of God. That's a lot to think about. So it's more than just God is great. It's a little bit more than God is great. It's the greatness of God. Our words just pale. And then the second line that God is good. This speaks to his love. This speaks to his goodness. The fact that God can do no evil. He can do no sin. It speaks to his holiness. It speaks to his purpose and his plan. Are you with me? So God is great. Everything's under his authority. And God is good. He has a will and a plan, and it's for his glory. And if we're with him, it will also be for our good. And then there's the next part, but we'll get to the end, the the thank him. So in your Bible, in 1 Samuel 25, this is how the story goes. We'll, we'll, We'll cover all of it because it's a rich and detailed story, and I didn't want to cut any part of it out because my describing words will fail. Uh, But we'll make some comments as we go along. Verse 1, it says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. 
And they buried him in his house at Ramah. So here's the first comment. We only made it one verse and it's a long chapter. I hope you plan on being here for a while. It's, it's, it's kind of a simple obituary for a really great man, is it not? It just says, so Samuel died. If you're just joining us, Samuel is for whom this book is named. He didn't write all of it, but it begins with his story. You'll remember he was a miracle baby. His mother Hannah was barren and she cried out to God and God granted her a child because God is great and God is good and he had a plan and Hannah did thank him, right? And it began with Samuel and, and, and Samuel was this prophet of God, really the last judge and he anointed Saul, remember that, and then Saul decided that he wasn't going to thank this good and great God that made him king. And so God's spirit was taken from Saul. This is just the short version. And instead, another was anointed, a man after God's own heart, a man named David. And that's where we are in the saga, in the epic. Saul is still king, but he's spiritless. His star is descending. David is the anointed one, but he hasn't taken the throne yet. And all we get from Samuel is that he died... And all of Israel mourned him. It was a giant funeral. And they buried him. I love the simplicity of that. I think Samuel probably loved the simplicity of that. Because Samuel wasn't about Samuel, was he? Samuel was about God. So we'll pick it up. Second half of verse 1. It says, Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Mount, or I don't know how to say that, Moan, Moan, whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give us whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So let's pause right there. Um, This isn't a a shakedown uh, where we fill in the gaps is remember David is in exile. He's got about 600 misfits with him, right? They're not mercenaries, but they don't quite fit in. They're kind of living like outlaws. And David had provided some cover for Nabal's herdsmen while they were in the field from rustlers, cattle rustlers, right? Because this guy's got a lot of cattle. He's a very wealthy man, and scripture tells us he's also a foolish man, but he's married to a beautiful and discerning woman, but that comes later. And so David sends some of his guys at, at, the, at the harvest time, at the feast time, and, and says, hey, I'd like you, you know, I'd like to collect, you know, can we get some payment? 
They don't, they don't have jobs other than what they can do with their weapons as this little band of marauders. And look, we treated your guys well. We offered them protection and we're requesting our payment. Look what happens next. Verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all of this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Well, that escalated quickly, didn't it? Do you see the escalation? If those young men brought David's words, it was peace be unto you, and peace be unto your house, and peace be unto everyone who's at. It was peace, peace, peace. There was a lot of peace going on. And then when Nabal's answer is to disrespect the anointed one, because remember, David's been anointed. He's been chosen by God to be the next king. We see David, when he hears the news, strap on your your swords, boys. We're going to war. We're going to war. He was disrespected. He had been uh, uh, disallowed his payment. And now he's going to do what normal red-blooded men whose you know, frontal lobe gets flipped. That's what they're going to do. Let's fight about it. Strap on your swords. Here we go. Verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife. Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet your master. And he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us and we suffered, or we suffered no harm and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by, day, or by night and by day all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do for harm is determined against your master and against all his house and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Now, I know we're just taking it a chunk at a time, but there's too much in there to skip over. As it just so happens, perfect timing, one of Nabal's men, one of the shepherds, rides to get help. He goes to the smart one in the relationship. He goes to the discerning one in the relationship. He goes to the one who's not a fool. He goes to Abigail. And he says, look, this is what happened. He completely disrespected. He railed against these guys. There's going to be a fight. These guys are soldiers. We're farmers. They're coming. And your husband is such a fool, he won't listen. You and I both know this. That's pretty extraordinary when you think about it. I can't think of another place in scripture where a husband is just completely bus-chucked, right, in front of his wife like that. Oh, it gets better. It gets better. Verse 18, then Abigail made haste 
And she took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. So Abigail thinks quickly, we've got a situation on our hands. There's going to be bloodshed and she knows it. And she loads a bunch of donkeys full of food and goes down to meet David. Who had said, and the author fills in the backstory for for us, David actually calls down an oath from heaven. It's like saying, I swear to God, which I don't, unless you really mean it, I probably would counsel you not to use that phrase. But he says, I swear to God, I'm going to kill every man in that household. There's going to be a bloodbath. Do you feel the tension? Feel the tension in the air. All the dudes are going to die. Abigail's got a speech. Verse 24. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you. And has appointed you prince over Israel. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. Or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord then remember your servant. Now, I, I realize the speech could have got a little confusing because there's a lot of lords in there. Did you notice that? And you even heard me kind of, I was on the struggle bus there with all, because some of the lords were small L, that's in re- reference to David. She is revere him, or she's revering him, and she's showing deference to him as the Lord's anointed. Capital L, the Lord, L-O-R-D, meaning God. 
So she's speaking to the Lord as my Lord, but she's also referencing the Lord. And in her speech, she's saying, the reason that I'm here, it's by God's hand. So that you can be restrained from this evil thing. She begins by saying, look, it's all my fault. I, I take all of the guilt. Did she have any guilt? No, but she said, I wasn't there. If I would have been there, I would have stopped this. And then she reminds him of the promises of God to him, asks him to forgive and to receive the gift. This is extraordinary stuff. This woman's a theologian. This woman knows the score. This woman has, as the scripture says, discernment. She knows who the Lord and the Lord is. How great he is and how good he is. Verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. I don't know how his lid got unflipped, But David gives the credit to God. Did you catch that? I mean, he says, thank you, Abigail. Bless you, but bless the Lord who sent you. Verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. And in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey. And her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galam. Now we'll get to that last little PS here in a few minutes, but... The reason that I wanted to cover every bit of this story is because it's so rich in detail 
And it's so intriguing. And it, to me, it's just a fascinating part. You can't leave any part out. So if you're sitting there going, wow, we just read a really long story time with Johnny. What part do I leave out? The amazing speech? You know, the, 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 the rich feast packed upon the donkeys? You know, the moment of strap on your swords. We're going to the okay corral. I mean, there's no parts to leave out. What does it have to do with God being great and God being good? Well, what we see and what the theme is all throughout this story is we get a clear picture of the grace of God. We get a clear picture of the grace of God. Now, I don't want to bore you with all the theological things, but the grace that I'm talking about has been referred to as common grace or restraining grace, or depending on what denominational background you have, the provenient grace of God. All it means is God is so good and so gracious, he just doesn't show grace to his children, to those of us who've received him by faith. God shows grace to all mankind and all he's created. Now, it's not saving grace. There's a difference. But it does come from God's character, his goodness, and his greatness that he shows common grace to all things. What do I mean by this? Well, it says in the book of Proverbs that the sun shines on the wicked and the evil alike and rains fall on the wicked and the evil alike. This is God's common grace, his provenient grace, the grace he shows to all mankind. There's grace when you see justice done, even if it's not done by Christians or saved people, for example. This is God's common grace. The very fact that someone can do good apart from God, and I'll admit there's people that don't believe in Jesus, they're not Christians, they don't follow God, but you know what? They really seem like good persons. The only reason they can do anything good is because of God's grace that he's shown to them. Scripture teaches that we are desperately wicked above all things. We're born wicked, and the last part of God's common grace, his restraining grace, if God was not holding back evil, we would be living in utter mayhem, in utter chaos. I've tried to describe this before. The sin that we've caused, the evil that's in the world, the evil that's in our hearts, the works of the wicked one, the evil one, the... the, the, prince of the powers of the air, Satan, old Slewfoot, Beelzebub, whatever you want to call him, with all of that going on, if God wasn't holding it back, you think it's bad now? <laughs> wow. The only thing holding it back is God. It's like sin and evil are a vicious dog all the time at the end of a leash. And a good and great God is in complete control of that leash. And sometimes he gives him his head. Sometimes he allows stuff to happen. And to be honest, that stuff's above my pay grade. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29, that there are secret things that belong to the Lord our God. Some things according to his will and according to his plan. But we see grace all throughout. Nabal was shown grace. A man and his, you know, little band of ragamuffins provided him protection. But he showed no gratitude, did he? And when he had an opportunity to give thanks, ooh, this is interesting, to the Lord's anointed... 
He thumbed his nose at it. Better yet, he insulted it. I don't want anything to do with the Lord's anointed. Who is this David? There are many, many servants who've run away from their masters. Did you catch that dig? You belong to Saul. I don't know who you are and I'm not paying you nothing. He had no time or no use for the grace that was shown to him. David is rash and he's completely angry, right? It says in scripture that in our anger, we're not to sin, but David's completely lost the plot. He wants to go and kill everyone. Maybe the stress has been building up for David, right? He's, he's been having all these close calls with Saul and he's just getting away and should I kill him? Should I not? Well, he's in the bathroom in the cave. You remember that one? But he's, he's really noble when it comes to Saul. But when it comes to Nabal, he's like, that's it. He's dead and all of his people. But did you catch that part when it said, uh, but a messenger. There was a messenger. Kind of saved the day. Isn't God's timing always just perfect? It doesn't feel like it when you're waiting, does it? It doesn't feel like it when you think that you're God and you have a better idea. But his timing is just perfect. And by the way, God's also perfect at arranging all the coincidences. I was about to coach a soccer game this week and one of our own walked up to me and he says, hey, good luck, coach. And if it was anyone else, I'd have just said thanks. But he was a tabernacle guy, so I said, I don't believe in luck, but thank you. God arranges all the coincidences. And then we see This discerning and beautiful Abigail who rushes to intercede, right? And then David calms down and lives were saved, but not Nabal's, not his life. Not only is he a fool, that's the meaning of his name. Not only is he a worthless man by his wife's estimate and the people that work for him, but he's also a drunken fool. And he has either a stroke or a heart attack and he dies. The timing, the coincidences. I don't know about you, but one of of the best parts of going through the Old Testament is looking for the little little hints and the, the little aroma of the gospel. Did you catch it in the story? Abigail is almost a Christ figure because she intercedes for a sin she didn't commit. She says, the guilt is mine and mine alone. If I would have been there, this wouldn't have happened. None of the guilt was hers, but just like Jesus intercedes for us and takes on our sin and shame, she was ready as she's bowing down before the anointed one saying, please receive this. But it's not just there. In the last thing that she said, she said, when you are prince over all of Israel and when God has done everything he said he would do for you and when you are blessed and you are our king, I'd only ask one thing, remember your servant. Have we heard that before? Jesus, our savior, crucified between two thieves. One hurled insults at him. The other one said, no, we deserve this. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's all these just little interesting things. But the big point for us 
is that God's restraining grace, God's goodness and his greatness are for us. They're for us. One of the most often quoted bits of scripture from Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I know many of us have heard that before, but the problem is when we quote it, we only quote the part that we like. And it's the first part or just the middle part here in the ESV. We say, well, you know, all things work together for good. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Not for everyone. Because if there's no wasted words in Scripture, then we look at what it says in verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That means for the Christian, for the one who's loving God and loving people, for the disciple, for the follower... For the one who's had his dry bones rattled awake and is trying his best to run hard after Jesus with passion, right? He's saying, for those that love God, all things work together for good. But he doesn't leave it there either. Because there's a comma. For those who are called, again, that's for Christians, according to his purpose. So it's saying, okay, so if you're a Christian, you can find hope and you can believe and you can endure because if you love God, the good, the bad, and the ugly of your life and their life and all of our lives in this big jumbled mess, right, that only the common grace of God is, is, is preventing from turning into the walking dead season 12. Good, you don't watch that show. For the Christian, it all works together, but according to his purpose. See, he has a plan and a purpose, and many times I don't see it. It may be beyond my lifetime. It may be beyond this century. Who knows how God is weaving all of the good and the bad and the ugly together, but I know this. He's great and he's good. And this great... Sovereign God, who is good, has a purpose and a plan that he's trying to weave together. You know, there's a young woman, many of us that are older would remember her name, and her name is Johnny Erickson Tata, and um, beautiful young girl in the 70s, I think, 16 or 17, if I have the story right, and she dove into a lake head first, and it was too shallow, and she was paralyzed from the waist down. Not the waist down, the neck down. Life cut short, you would say, or you would think. Today, you know, she's married. I believe she has children. She's a prolific speaker and writer and author and painter. But she still, (laughs) she has to do everything with her mouth, right? Tragedy makes no sense. Oh, well, you know, if that didn't happen, then she wouldn't know how to paint with her mouth. Well, if that didn't happen, then she probably wouldn't have been a well-known author, speaker, whatever. That's easy for me to say. I'm not sitting in the chair for my whole life. 
What she had to say about Romans 8.28 is about this great God, this good God, that sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. You see, it's easy for me to say, well, if God is so great and God is so good, why did cancer happen? If God is great and God is good, then why did my loved one die? If God is great and God is good, why the trouble? Why the divorce? Why the difficulty? Why the depression? Well, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Now, in our story, God did both. First, we see his grace restraining David from a massacre, from murder. Did you catch that? But he allowed Nabal to step in it and have the heart attack and die. And David sees it. There's a moment of clarity where he sees Romans 8, 28. Oh, God has... Great, and he's good, and he's restrained me from doing these things. And even though the New Testament hadn't been written yet, I know David would get it. He'd be like, yeah, God works all things together for the good of those that love him because I love him, and there's a purpose and a plan to make me king. And then look what David does. Right after God restrains him, right after God blesses him, David celebrates by sinning again doesn't he? Hey, tell that beautiful uh, newly widowed Abigail, I'd like to add her to my harem. I've got a wife, but I heard she was given away. I haven't been really trying to go visit her that much, but I'd like to marry her and I'm going to marry this other girl too because I'm kind of a big deal. You confused? Humans haven't changed. 4,000 years, have we? We haven't changed. Have you noticed how many times God will bless? Well, I don't want to speak for you. I'll speak for me. How many times God will bless me, right? And I see his hand and then I'll celebrate with sin. Why do I do that? Why did God restrain him from one and allow the other? Well, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. David David knew, or he should have known at least, that God's plan was not polygamy. But God allowed him to do it. And we see the mess that he's going to make out of that. If you follow the rest of David's life, in fact, if you follow the entire Old Testament, you see every time there's polygamy, multiple wives, all you see is heartache and pain and jealousy and strife. And David's sin right here is going to lead to a civil war. It's going to lead to the kingdom long after he's dead and gone, separated into two kingdoms. And it gets real confusing because we're going to have 10 tribes and, and, and two tribes. And we're going to have the northern and the southern. One's called Israel. One's called Judah. David's the reason I got an A- in Old Testament class. Because it just got really confusing. What's for us? God is great. God is good. So let us thank him. That's all throughout the story. Sovereignty and the greatness of God. The goodness of God. Even when we don't see it in the short term. 
because God had a plan. And there's a response that God expects. For the Christians, it's praise, it's worship, it's gratitude, it's faith. It's faith. You know, we've just come out of rattle, and for many of us, it's like, oh, back into Samuel. No, that means, no. Now we run harder. We praise, we worship, we gather, we fellowship, we're fed, we scatter, we minister, we love God, we love people, we make disciples. He is great, he is good. We respond by thanking him. Not just with our mouths, but with the way we live our lives. Not just with our mouths and with memorized prayers, but the way we encourage one another, the way we believe, the way we hope. We serve a great God. We serve a good God. And most of the world doesn't know him. We thank him. We thank him by the way we live our lives, by being a part of the mission. By serving, by loving, by believing, by holding on to the very end. It's what Jesus did for us. It's what Jesus did for you, what he did for me. He is the anointed one. And we have a choice. We can stiff arm him like Nabal. We can ignore him like David. We can believe faithfully like Abigail. My hope and my prayer is that the tabernacle would be full of men and women and students who believe in this good and great God and respond. We respond with thanks. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? This is the moment, whether you're listening or watching or here in Buckley or in Manistee, Where I ask for you to ask God what he has for you, what he has said to you, and the follow-up question of what does he want you to do about it? For some of us, We don't know this good and great God. There's an opportunity to become his child by asking him into your life. For some of us, it's time for us to believe again. For some of us, we've been like David. We've been angry for a long time. For some of us, we've been like Nabal, letting a wise and discerning faithful wife have to take the lead because we're a drunken fool. Jesus welcomes all of us. Whatever he's saying, would you give him your yes? Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are great. You are sovereign. You're in control. God, I thank you that you are good, that you are merciful and loving. And that you have a purpose and a plan beyond what I can see with my eyes. God, may we live lives of gratitude and of worship and of praise. 
for your glory and for Christ's sake. And it's in his name we pray, amen.